This is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This lecture series is designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Today we have Dr. Sharon Clancy joining us. Uh, Dr. Clancy did her training at the University of Southern California and has been on the Duke Plastic Surgery faculty for the last couple of years. She specializes in breast reconstruction as well as edema surgery and has started a lymphedema practice at our Duke Raleigh Hospital. Thank you, Dr. Clancy, for joining us. Thank you for having me uh, join you guys today. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about lymphedema. Um, Dr. Clancy has done a lot of work in this and she's setting up her practice um, in Raleigh to see new patients for uh, lymphatic venous bypass as well as lymph node transfers. Um, at first we'll talk a little bit about what lymphedema is. Lymphedema is a progressive condition characterized by local or systemic failure of lymphatic transport. There are two different kinds of lymphedema, primary and secondary. Primary results from abnormally formed lymphatic channels resulting in congenital lymphedema or lymphedema developed later in life. Secondary lymphedema results from destruction or pathology of normally formed lymphatic channels. Heather, can you talk a little bit about the role of the lymphatic system? Sure. Um, so the primary role of the lymphatic system is to remove interstitial fluid from the body and return lymph, which is composed of protein and fat, back into the blood circulation. It plays a critical role um, in the immune system and response. Um, when the right. lymphatic system is, yes, is interrupted by primary or secondary lymphedema, an accumulation of lymphatic fluid occurs. Uh, this increases the osmotic pressure and leads to fluid collection in the interstitium. This then leads to a chronic pro-inflammatory state. This results in ongoing inflammation and formation of fibrosis, decrease in lymphatic channels, and an increase in subcutaneous adipose tissue. Exactly. And there are different types of primary lymphedema, which we'll mention for here. These are often tested on our in-service exam. Um, so when we talk about primary lymphedema, we talked about how um, this is from abnormally formed lymphatic channels. But it's characterized by an early onset of symptoms, a lack of inciting events, or a positive family history. The first one we'll talk about is Milroy's disease. This is an X-linked autosomal dominant form of primary lymphedema. It typically presents at birth with unilateral pitting edema, and patients exhibit normal growth and normal MRIs when studied, um, and there can also be ocular involvement. For lymphedema precox, this is a non-congenital form of primary lymphedema, so uh, this typically does not occur at birth, but it occurs before puberty. And then the third one that we'll talk about is lymphedema tarda. So this is another example of primary lymphedema. It does not manifest congenitally, but it mainly manifests midlife. So Milroy's is at birth, lymphedema praecox is before puberty, and lymphedema tarda is midlife. And also for um, lymphedema praecox, um, the other thing that you might see is mage disease sometimes. Um, that's the other kind of terminology. Um, and most most geneticists think that there is an autosomal dominant pattern. So that may or may not come up on your in-service. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Clancy. Just out of curiosity, have you seen any of those patients, Dr. Clancy? Um, I actually have. Um, so I, my practice is still in the, in its, 
infancy of, of building. And I see a lot of, um, a lot of upper extremity lymphedema, secondary lymphedema from breast cancer. Um, and I actually see a fair amount of lower extremity, um, lymphedema. Uh, most of which um, that I have seen thus far have fallen into kind of this primary lymphedema um, situation. So I have seen a couple of uh, a couple of patients um, thus far, even in the last year, that have had you know lymphedema precox, and um, uh, one that I think probably has an undiagnosed Milroy's disease. Um, and so I think it's um, it's definitely a little bit more prominent that you, than you would um, even imagine um, when you start looking at um, all the patients with kind of primary uh, primary lymphedema. Um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because because sometimes they they were never diagnosed earlier uh, and then just have this kind of uh, Slow onset of progressive progressive swelling, um, and don't know what causes it. Unilateral, bilateral, lower extremities, um, and otherwise healthy people. And so, um, a lot of times they go to a therapist first, and then the therapist says, "Well, once you get evaluated by a vascular, you know, vascular surgeon first, which sometimes is the first um, person that they see before they get over to somebody who's doing lymphatic surgery." Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, so I think that's a good segue into talking about um, some of the type of secondary lymphedema. Um, Rach, would you want to talk about that? Sure. So um, secondary lymphedema is non-congenital lymphedema. So it's, it comes from some inciting event. And typically patients will have a history of previous trauma, surgery, or radiation. Um, symptoms can occur months to years after the inciting event. Surgery is the main cause of secondary lymphedema. Um, the incidence of, of upper extremity lymphedema following surgery and radiation for breast cancer can range from anywhere from 4 to 49% in the literature. Sentinel lymph node biopsies alone have a up to 7% uh, incidence of lymphedema, 39% after an axillary node dissection, and 66% after inguinal lymph node dissection. So a lot of these patients will present um, after after surgical intervention. The most common that we're tested on is the filariasis. Um, it's the most common cause mm -hmm. of secondary lymphedema worldwide, and that's typically in underdeveloped countries um, where we see that more often. Dr. Clancy, yeah. any thoughts? No, um, I think I think your primary are going to be that you're going to see, um, at least in, in the United States, is going to be secondary lymphedema um, uh, from cancer, um, ablative surgeries, um, when you add, particularly for breast cancer, when you add um, axillary node surgery plus radiation plus some of the different types of uh, chemotherapy that are used, that's where you start getting into the higher numbers and the range is all over the place. But I think consistently, I think um, most people believe that there's probably about a 30 to 40 percent um, risk of uh, developing um, upper extremity lymphedema after axillary node surgery and radiation, um, which is pretty high. Um, so um, you do always have to have that in the back of your mind when you're seeing lower extremity or other types of uh, uh, lymphedemas that um, haven't had surgery in terms of like, have they had any type of travel history, but it's in terms of filariasis, you're not gonna be seeing that on a regular basis, at least in the United States. 
So the next thing we'll talk about is diagnosis of lymphedema. Heather, do you kind of want to talk about the different stages of lymphedema that we see um, and how it's fucked up? Sure. Um, so the first thing you want to do when you see a patient um, who you suspect may have edema is you want to rule out other diagnoses, including venous insufficiency, um, deep vein thrombosis, uh, congestive heart failure, and renal failure. And then once you've kind of ruled those out and your suspicion has moved more towards um, lymphedema diagnosis, um, you want to look at staging them. So stage one would be patients who begin to experience early progressive swelling from distal to proximal. Um, this can be corrected with elevation and compression. Generally, you observe um, some pitting edema. Um, and then in terms of following the staging progression, it's good to continually take serial limb measurements so you can kind of gauge the progress of the lymphedema. Stage two would be um, a progressive fibrosis with adipocyte proliferation and uh, actually less pitting edema. There's also a decreased responsiveness to these sort of non-surgical therapies uh, that are more effective in stage one. Of note, a stemmer sign is when the skin cannot be tented. Um, typically, this is done at the base of the second toe um, or dorsal skin of the finger or toe, which distinguishes uh, edema from lymphedema from uh, edema from venous insufficiency. Um, and this is a result of decreased skin pliability. And then stage three um, is lymphostatic elephantiasis. Um, the tissues demonstrate induration and absence of pitting and dermal, dermal, eh, dermatologic changes um, like due to orange, uh, hyperkeratosis, and polypoid nodules. Yeah. And so, um, so for the staging, um, the staging criteria that, um, that you guys just went over, um, is most consistent with, I think most people are using it, the ISL, um, International Society of um, Lymphedema Staging System. There are multiple different staging systems out there, but I think this is the one that is most uh, readily kind of um, incorporated with and most people use, although there are, just to know, there are some other lymphedema staging um, ones that are out there. Um, and um, this is a kind of a this is a good overview and kind of goes into like you mentioned a little bit in terms of the interventions that can be used for lymphedema um, and which ones of the interventions do tend to work for certain stages and which ones might be more appropriate. So as we kind of get into talking about talking about the actual interventions and what can be done, the staging is is really important for that. Thanks, Dr. Clancy. Um, next, I'll briefly mention the workup. So there are different studies that are uh, usually done for lymphedema. Um, there are three imaging studies that I'll briefly talk about. The first one is radionuclide, radionuclide lymphocentigraphy. So this assesses a function of the lymphatic channels and drainage into the lymph node basin. Um, it can evaluate the severity of lymphedema and assess for anatomical abnormalities such as obstruction or reduced lymphatic channels. This one is the most commonly used. Um, the second one is MR uh, lymphangiography, and this has been developed to provide superior high-resolution anatomical images of the lymphatic system and characterize the soft tissue changes associated with lymphedema. The third one is endocyanine green lymphangiography, which offers real-time visualization of lymphatic flow and is helpful in patients who cannot undergo um, MR lymphangiography. 
Um, Dr. Clancy, in your practice, what imaging modalities do you use for workup for these patients? So, um, so I think um, I think regular lymphocentigraphy definitely has a role, and like I said, is kind of probably the most commonly used test um, that the radiologists perform. So it's easily um, it's easily ordered by anybody for kind of workup or diagnosis of uh, lymphedema. Um, so if you have somebody who is kind of don't really know where they stand, is this a venous problem? Is this a lymphatic problem um, that will help you kind of delineate um, delineate uh, uh, lymphedema versus some other um, some other reasons but um, I I and a lot of people use um, uh, ICG lymphangiography um, as a as a primary um, diagnostic uh, tool for this um, because it gives you a lot of information and particularly in real time um, to also identify whether or not a patient would be a good candidate for an LV bypasser versus a lymph node transfer. Um, it is very, uh, it's, it's very easy to do. Um, it can be done in the clinic. Um, it's uh, very easy for the patients to undergo pretty straightforward to um, to learn how to do it, um, and it's not expensive, uh, which is a big thing. Um, MR lymph angiography um, is also, like you mentioned, is a great test and is, is gives you wonderful, unbelievable images, you know, similar to mapping the lymphatics like the ICG um, and potentially doing uh, venous mapping as well if you, um, if you do it in that fashion. Um, but um, but it can take a long time. It's not it's a it's an expensive test um, to undergo. It's not readily available um, at most places. Unfortunately, um, here um, at Duke we don't have the capability or we don't have the we're, we're not we're not offering that to patients right now. So um, so I think it's very useful. But I don't think it's a, as the primary test. I think lymphocentigraphy. I think ICG lymphangiography, and if you have the capability, I certainly think MR lymphangiography is um, is a great test if you can get it done. All right, Heather, your turn. Good. It's your turn. All right. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> uh, moving on to treatment of lymphedema, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Clancy already sort of started touching on this, but um, there. Are, two different options, uh, non-surgical and surgical. Uh, surgical or non-surgical treatment would include things like elevation, skin care, elastic stockings. Uh, the sort of threshold that we like to use is 20 millimeters of mercury for the pressure, uh, physical therapy, and pneumatic compression devices. Um, these sort of non-surgical modalities are really lifelong commitments for patients and requires a high level of compliance. Uh, for surgical treatments, um, the goal of, the, of a surgical treatment is to improve the patient's functional status and lessen the burden of some of these non-surgical therapies um, by reducing reliance on compression and really to decrease the risk of um, recurrent infections. Uh, there are both physiologic uh, surgical procedures and ablative surgical procedures, so those are the, sort of the two categories. Physiologic procedures promote anterograde flow of lymph via either bypass or um, induction of lymphangiogenesis. Uh, they should be considered early in the course of the condition to optimize uh, lymph drainage. And then ablative surgeries really kind of debulk the areas of lymphedema to reduce morbidity 
They may be performed at any stage of lymphedema um, during the course of lymphedema progression and are usually reserved for later stages when physiologic, physiologic intervention is not really possible. So, um, so Dr. So Clancy, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask kind of when you see these patients, how do you decide who is going to get what and when do you start non-surgical treatments? How long do you do non-surgical treatments before you start discussing operative intervention? Um, so it's a good question. So um, usually by the for the most part, by the time the patient comes to see me in, in clinic, it's not... I'm not the first stop, um, and, and typically a plastic surgeon is not the first stop in um, in their treatment kind of course. So um, I think for any any of these things that we're going to talk about in terms of operations, um, there really has to be a pretty strong partnership with your um, therapist and your certified uh, lymphedema therapist and your uh, physical therapists or occupational therapists who are uh, dealing with these um, patients. So um, so the mainstay of all of these different types of kind of treatments um, is that patients are optimized as much as possible with their non-surgical treatments, which if you kind of kind of lump in the, the kind of term that a lot of people use is complete decongestive therapies, and that includes the Elevation in the skincare and the um, and the stockings and the um, compression pumps, and so um, so when a patient comes in um, to see me, um, if they have not you know seen a certified lymphedema therapist, if they've just seen a therapist that kind of put them in a sleeve and said you know good luck with this, then um, then I'll send them I'll send them to somebody who will do proper evaluation and proper measurements and really get them on a program. And what they typically do is and they usually have them in an active treatment program for a period of time um, to um, kind of optimize things. And active I mean they're going into the therapist, they're on the, you know, several, you know, several times a week basis or weekly basis um, to the point where they kind of stabilize and then they send them out on on treatment that they continue to do at home. So um for the surgical interventions, when you talk about patients who are good surgical candidates, they really have to have kind of optimized and, and maximized the non-invasive, non-surgical treatments as much as possible. So for some people, that may be six months or more. You know, some people that may be, you know, three months type of situation, but typically not less than three months because it takes a period of time. So um, I don't have like a definitive time frame, but I would say roughly between three to six months at least showing some stabilization of where they are before introducing any type of surgical interventions, um, which we'll talk about next. Thanks, Dr. Clancy. So next we'll talk about physiologic operations. Um, there are two commonly performed tra uh, transfers that we do, which are a lymphaticovenous anastomosis or bypass and vascularized lymph node transfers. So the first one is lymphaticovenous anastomosis. This is a bypass operation that serves to redirect excess lymphatic fluid into the venous circulation by anastomosing superficial lymphatic vessels at the dermis to nearby venules. 
Prior to surgery, endocyanine green lymphangiography is performed to determine the location of the lymphatic vessels. This is typically injected distally, and a near-infrared camera is used to detect the channels. Their course is traced, and transverse incisions are made over the marked channels. Um, isosulfan dye is injected subcutaneously distal to each mark to aid in identification, and then the lymphatic channels and venules are identified in anastomose end-to-end -end or end-to-side with 11-0 or 12-0 suture. Patency is confirmed by, by visualizing anterograde flow. Um, usually there are uh, several done um, in each operation. And then the second one that I'll talk about is the vascularized lymph node transfer. This technique is used when the native lymph node basins are dysfunctional, so this can be after radiation um, or lymphadenectomy. This technique is thought to promote local lymphangiogenesis through production of vascular endothelial growth factors. Common donor sites include the supraclavicular lymph nodes or superficial inguinal lymph nodes. The supraclavicular nodes are located inferiorly within the posterior triangle of the neck in the fat between the omohyoid muscle and anterior scalene muscles. Uh, this is supplied by the transverse cervical vessels. And when uh, you're performing this, you need to remember to take caution when harvesting on the left side to avoid injury to the thoracic duct. Um, this can be tested on our in-service. And usually contralateral mm -hmm. nodes are harvest to, harvested to avoid further exacerbation of lymphedema. The superficial inguinal lymph nodes are supplied by the superficial circumflex iliac vessels from the femoral artery and are located in the subscarpus fat between the inguinal ligament and groin crease. Um, you need to remember to remain superior to the groin uh, crease in order to not disrupt the lymph nodes that drain the lower extremity. Um, some examples are um, are used kind of at the time of breast reconstruction. Um, uh, you can include the lymph node basin, or you can do a lymphovenous anastomosis. Um, Dr. Kutti, can you talk a little bit about your use of each of these? So, um, so yeah, and I think this kind of goes back to what is the what's the right surgery for the right patient, and so. Uh, when you're kind of looking at how to identify whether or not you're going to do a, um, an LV um, a bypass or an estimosis versus lymph node uh, transfer versus a combination of, of both of those at the same time, um, you kind of need to know whether or not um, patients have intact uh, functioning lymphatics. Um, so if if they do, they are, you know, if they do and there are targets that you can um, that you can look for that are identified on either the MR or the ICG lymphangiography, um, then they, they're a candidate potentially for that at earlier stages, which we talked about earlier, you know, stage, stage one, um, early stage one into stage two have better results than trying to do that type of procedure in somebody with a stage three uh, lymphedema. Um, same goes for the vascularized lymph node transfers. Um, you know, uh, the studies have shown that uh, the results are better in people with earlier stage lymphedema, and those are picked up on the earlier side. Um, so that goes to identification um, and proper kind of strati stratifying your 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 patient population into what makes most sense. Um, you know, uh, for the for the um, LV bypasses, um, I in addition to kind of what you um, talked about, um, I also use a vein finder, um, which is somewhat useful if somebody is not super edematous or fibrotic. 
to find those superficial veins and try to target where you're doing your anastomosis. That's also kind of a beneficial thing. Um, the vascularized lymph node transfers, you mentioned two of the many different options in terms of transferring uh, lymph nodes or lymphatic tissue. Um, so it, I think um, in terms of uh, decisions, in terms of looking at like the different options, everything that you said in terms of um, you have to be careful with the supraclavicular in terms of um, in terms of your um, you know injury to a thoracic duct or other uh, lymphatic channels, even on the even on the right side. Um, and with the groin um, lymph nodes, you have to be careful. You have to do reverse mapping. Um, and I think with those two things, with those two, and some people do lateral, I don't, but some people do lateral um, uh, uh, thoracic, lateral uh, lateral chest, uh, lymph node. Um, but a lot, a lot more people are are looking to omentum um, and um, omental flaps, which can be split. You can do two different transfers with a single harvest. Um, as well as potentially um, mesenteric lymph nodes, um, which uh, both have a very uh, low rate of um, of donor site lymphedema. They have there's other issues that can potentially develop, obviously with uh, laparotomies, um, but those are also two other two other modalities which are uh, useful. So I think in terms of looking at like looking at um, your lymph node transfer options um, to have multiple ones. And I think most people probably that are doing a fair amount of lymphatic surgery, you know, you have a couple different kind of go-tos. There aren't people who are doing, I'll do subclavicular today, we'll do a groin uh, next, we'll do a mental. Um, so I, and unfortunately right now, and it's not gonna come up on the in-service uh, most likely, but there's no consensus in terms of what is the, what's the best um, donor site for your lymph nodes, um, and hopefully we'll have some information about that in the next, you know, five to ten years or so. But um, but at this point, you don't. So the things that you can get tested on, things that you need to know, are the things that are standard, which is kind of what you said, things to look out for. I have a question about the transfers. How many people are mm -hmm. doing them at the same time as like an axo dissection? Or is anybody doing this prophylactically or potentially even maybe like after lymphedema occurs, um, you know, they're at the stage of breast reconstruction? What what do these kind of operations look like? Are they doing them no, as dissection? So in, um, in terms of what people are doing in terms of uh, primary lymphatic uh, reconstruction or reconstruction at the same time. We'll just talk about talk about breast uh, breast reconstruction um, or um, axillary node dissection. So um, there there are several groups and studies going on about doing um, just that in terms of primary lymphatic reconstruction. What that looks like is um, is basically um, lymphaticovenous anastomosis. Um, at the um, at the level of the axilla where those um, where those lymphatic vessels are cut and identifying those and reanastomosing the ones that have been cut to a, to a vein in the area type of thing um, and so that's not that doesn't go down into the lymph node transfer as a primary um, but 
but you know, preliminarily, some of the results from doing you know those primary lymphatic reconstructions is, um, is very favorable. Although certainly we need a lot more long-term um, follow-up and long-term data in terms of whether or not it's actually um, going to be as functional as as we think that it is. Um, in terms of doing um, in terms of doing lymph node transfer at the time of a breast reconstruction. So um, yes, you can do um, you can do combination flaps where you do a, a groin lymph node skip flap, um, you know, uh, i.e. T bar kind of reconstruction uh, where you do everything at the same time, um, and that certainly um, that certainly has been uh, described and has been shown to have some you know good results. Um, just you know, anecdotally, um, just by doing a primary, uh, you know, if you have a delayed reconstruction, just by doing a primary, um, you know, deep um, uh, or flap reconstruction, um, upwards of, you know, 15 to 20% of patients, their lymphedema will get better just with that, um, without doing a lymph node transfer. So, um, so you know, um, in my mind, if you're going to do that, um, it might be better to do to separate them. Um, although certainly you can look to do them at the same time. Um, uh, and um, in terms of um, heterotropic um, placement um, of the of the lymph nodes at the time of the reconstruction. So there's lots of different potential like. Uh, ways of doing this, and I think we just need more. We need more numbers, and we need more information to say what definitively is the best treatment route for these patients. Um, so, because um, right now I don't think it's very standardized, um, which is uh, which is unfortunate. Um, there's more people doing lymphedema, and there's more more uh, information, you know, that we're gathering. But um, but I still think that you know that we we need to have some more uh, more information. Um, Heather, do you kind of want to talk a little bit about what post-operative care looks like for these patients and um, outcomes? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a perfect segue to talking about um, what some of the outcomes are. Um, I know Dr. Clancy kind of touched on the fact that we don't have it, a ton of data, but there is some out there. Um, so I guess I'll talk about mm -hmm. that first. There are some reports that show that with um, the lymphatic ovenous bypass there is uh, somewhere between a 35 and 50% reduction in extremity circumference or volumes with mean follow-ups at at least a year. So it can take a long time for the patients to see any kind of um, visible change um, in the circumference or volume of their extremity. Um, there are also studies that show that subjectively about 96% of patients report improvement in their symptoms. And in, you know, in this particular study by Chang et al., um, there was a mean volume reduction by about 42%, so that falls into that same 35 to 50%. Um, the same paper revealed that there uh, is a greater benefit when the bypass is performed in early stages of lymphedema um, over advanced lymphedema. Um, and then as far as um, outcomes will be vascularized lymphedema transfers, um, there's a similar um, reported incidence of volume reduction at about 30 to 60% volume reduction. Um, it has shown to be superior to non-surgical treatments, at least of the upper extremity. Um, and then in terms of patient-reported outcomes, um, they, uh, studies have shown that quality of life improvements can be measured in both domains, 
uh, for upper and lower extremity lymphedema in the patients. But um, I know it can take a while for patients to really see the outcomes of these um, procedures, and you know we have to counsel them to be patient. And then in terms yeah. of okay, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Clancy. So, um, so I agree. So the vascularized lymph node um, transfers um, typically at least a year before they really see results, which is long time to wait. Um, versus um, LV bypasses, which you know, um, technically, if they're functioning and they're working, you're going to see results definitely, um, or the start of results more, um, uh, you know, quicker, quicker than um, than uh, than a year to two years out, um, which is certainly a long time, and that goes really into your preoperative counseling with the patients, which is um, which is so important. Um, and um, and one of the things with all of the studies in terms of volume reduction, the the most consistent thing is the the subjective um, improvement of kind of of symptomatology. And so um, most of these patients are never going to get off of their compression garments. I mean I, that would be ideal if you have somebody who you can get um, away from all of the non-invasive um, uh, uh, modalities that they have to deal with. But um, but it makes life, it definitely makes life easier and subjectively they feel better. And so, um, and so when you're counseling patients in terms of what the, what the reasons are and what the expectations are, um, it's not that they're going to get a 50% volume reduction and not going to have to wear their compression garment again. Um, so that's that's definitely something that I think when you look at the outcomes, at least that we have right now, um, that plays into kind of how you talk to these patients preoperatively um, in terms of setting expectations. As far as complications go, I heard you mention reverse lymphatic mapping, especially for the uh, iatrogenic lymphedema. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you use it in your practice? So. Um, Particularly, so for um, for lower for lower extremity, so for groin, if you're going to take groin superficial groin lymph nodes um, based on off of the superficial circumflex uh, uh, vessels, definitely doing reverse mapping to make sure that you are not taking uh, the well. So typically, the more medial, they can also be part of the superficial system, but the more medial. Um, primary draining lymph nodes of the lower extremities, so as to not, um, so as obviously to not um, induce a lymphedema of the lower extremity, which would be, um, which would be, you know, obviously uh, quite traumatic for the patient. Um, so, um, so that's, you know, it's readily done. It's also done for the upper extremity um, in terms of, uh, in conjunction with um, uh, reverse mapping, in conjunction with axillary node dissection. Um, so as to identify potentially primary draining lymphatics of the upper extremity, and if those are different than the breast ones that need to be taken, leaving those other ones potentially behind so you don't incite uh, the issues with lymphedema. Um, so um, not readily is used for supraclavicular, not needed for a mental um, or, uh, or, you know, mesenteric um, mesenteric uh, lymph node transfers, but definitely uh, for lower extremity for groin, uh, for groin node, uh, node transfers. 
So in, I guess in brief, just kind of summing up everything we've talked about for physiologic operations, for these two kind of surgeries, they're better done in the earlier stages um, before irreversible mm-hmm. changes happen. Um, lymphatic, lymphaticovenous anastomosis will primarily address lymphatic channels, whereas the node transfer is good for patients that have had um, damage to the primary lymph node basins, so like radiation, lymph node dissections, those kinds of things. Um, for outcomes, it sounds like both of them have both subjective and objective outcome measures, and you generally see those changes. Some say three to six months, but you definitely say one year before you can say anything definitive. And then, you know, our most direct complication would be iatrogenic lymphedema, um, which can um, be mitigated by doing reverse mapping. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, Heather, do you want to talk a little bit about ablative surgeries? Sure. Um, So the main goal of ablative techniques is to actually remove excess skin or subcutaneous tissue, and they serve to decrease the bulk and improve functional um, status of these patients as well as their hygiene. It's typically, these procedures are typically indicated in higher stages of lymphedema um, that have progressed to fibrosis and fatty infiltration. So the first procedure that we were going to talk about is the Charles procedure. Um, this technique is the earliest technique and was um, described as a resection of the skin and subcutaneous tissue to either the deep fascia or underlying epignesium. The wounds are, re- are then resurfaced with skin graft. Um, the skin graft may be taken actually from the resected tissue. Um, this affects the superficial lymphatics and may cause exacerbation of lymphedema along the foot if it's done um, in the lower extremity. Uh, then the Homan technique, which is a stage subcutaneous excision, it's just another method to debulk areas of chronic lymphedema without the need for skin grafting. Um, longitudinal incisions are made with wide elevation of skin or subcutaneous flaps. Fibrotic subcutaneous tissue is then resected down to epimesium. Redundant skin is removed, and this is repeated in stages until the extremity is sufficiently debulked. And then finally, um, there's suction lipectomy. This has been used in advanced lymphedema patients who do not have significant pitting edema. Large volume lipo aspirate may be removed, and it's important to utilize early compression after the procedure and really for the rest of their lives uh, in the patients that you're uh, performing suction lipectomy on. And then I guess, Rachel, would you want to just go through some examples of some conditions that may benefit from these sort of more ablative techniques? These examples requiring ablation are uh, have been tested on in our previous in-service test. So the first one I'll uh-huh. mention is paniculus morbidus. Um, this is a mm-hmm. severe form of abdominal lipodystrophy. Um, it prevents weight loss, and so paniculectomy with primary closure is typically performed for these patients. Um, another example is um, liposuction. This can be performed on lower extremities with severe bilateral edema and fibrotic changes. Um, Mm -hmm. We have been tested on penile lymphedema, so other techniques do not work, but uh, excision or a stage excision and grafting will work for these patients. And then this year, we were tested a lot on chronic lymphedema. Um, If the patients have infections, it's important um, that they're treated, and the treatment of choice is typically excision over liposuction for these patients. Um, Dr. Clancy, what are your thoughts? No, I think that they're all like good good uh, examples. I mean, I think that the on the spectrum of um, 
you know, I think of these as physiologic and non-physiologic interventions. But on the spectrum of the what you're calling the ablative um, surgeries, where you're trying to decrease bulk and decrease the kind of fullness, um, you know, it's, it's easy to it's easy to understand the um, the paniculus, um, the massive paniculus that you know you need to the massive. Um, lower extremity lymphedema that is not going to uh, respond. Um, but the um, the ones that kind of fall into that, like, category where they're pretty severe, maybe they're early stage three, maybe they still have some pitting, still might benefit from having a physiologic intervention, um, whatever that may be, um, as well as having a debulking. And so there is a caveat that people don't necessarily, patients don't necessarily fall into only physiologic or only ablative type of um, interventions. And so um, many times they, you know, I would recommend that they, you know, have the physiologic, you know, initially and then come back and then whatever fibro fatty um, deposition and, and component, uh, they still have a significant um, component of that, which they will um, if they have advanced disease, then at that point, entertaining liposuction only or liposuction with uh, direct excision to really uh, decrease the uh, the fullness of the limb. That being said, liposuction only has been around, and Charles procedure has been around for a long time. Liposuction only has been around for a long time for treatment for primary treatment of any type of lymphedema, and it is 100% effective. So you can liposuction uh, a lymphedema patient regardless of what their stage are, and you can make them better in terms of if you look at circumferential measurements. The caveat to that is that they always have to wear compression compression garments after uh, they have that forever. If they because you haven't done anything to address the fluid component, you're only addressing that extra kind of fibro fatty deposition that happens. And so, um, so it's liposuction is great. Um, it's just it's not you know it comes with um, it comes with the uh, you know, the handcuffs of having to wear the compression garments forever. So um, so I think, um, you know, it's good to kind of think of these things as two separate categories, but understanding that there's a lot of kind of crossover between the two of them, um, except in those people that are really the severely advanced um, elephantiasis that, you know, that are going to be better served by, you know, an excision type procedure. Um, over anything else. A lot of what we're tested on and a lot of what's important for these workups of lymphedema patients is understanding kind of where they are and where they, um, and what kind of operations will best suit them. And um, I think that kind of goes into an algorithm and we have a little bit of one, especially for the physiologic procedures. I think we talked a little bit about it earlier, but Heather, do you mind um, mentioning that briefly? Yeah, and this is a nice sort of like summary to everything we've kind of talked about. Mm -hmm. But um, in general, patients are amenable to physiologic interventions if they are responsive to non-surgical therapy and have significant pitting edema. Patients are not amenable to physiologic interventions such, such as the bypass or lymph node transfer um, if they have really no improvement with non-surgical techniques and no longer experience pitting edema, which is a sign mm -hmm. of fibrosis and increasing adiposity. Dr. Glancy, did you have something mm -hmm. to add? No, I agree. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, 
And then when choosing between the two procedures, um, it's important to take into account the reasons for the lymphedema. Um, if they're secondary to surgery or radiation therapy and do not have suitable lymphatic vessels based on the imaging techniques we talked about earlier, um, you might want to go with the vascularized lymph node transfer. Um, if they do have suitable lymphatic vessels to bypass, um, you may include this in the treatment regimen or perform alone if the lymph nodes uh, were not destroyed in uh, earlier procedures. Agreed. Well, awesome. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for uh, being yeah, here with absolutely. us today and moderating this session. I think this um, is a great kind of outline for uh, residents and um, when we're studying for in-service exams. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me.